Welcome to another episode of the Bible Archives. And today we are going to explore Genesis chapter 20 and Genesis chapter 21. And this comes on the heels of a very uh, highlighted chapter, which is Genesis 19. And we had talked about how Genesis 19 needs Genesis 18, but Genesis 20 is still connected to that story. So the, the, if, if 18 and 19 was sort of the first interactions of the covenant, uh, you know, how does this work? Well, Genesis 20 and Genesis 21 are continuing that, but unfortunately, these two chapters sit between two prominent chapters, Genesis 19 and Genesis 22, which is, you know, people hear those stories all the time. So these chapters are skipped a lot, but there's a lot of interesting things going on here. So let's start with, let's, let's make sure we uh, got a good understanding of what led up to this moment, and then let's get into, so what's going on in Genesis chapter 20. Okay, yeah. Genesis chapter 20, then, is just another version of the story that we, that we heard in chapter 12. Uh, Abraham and Sarah are traveling, and they come to a city. Abraham tells everyone that Sarah is his sister, and the king, Abimelech, falls for her and takes her into his harem. But then God sends a dream to Abimelech, telling him that Sarah is actually Abraham's wife. The dream is a lengthy conversation between God and Abimelech, in which Abimelech asserts his innocence. God tells Abimelech to return Sarah, and that Abraham will then intercede as a prophet for him. Apparently, having Sarah in his harem has caused all his women to become infertile. So Abraham gives them livestock and slaves and invites them to settle in his land. Abraham and Sarah go, and then everything seems to kind of work out. So there's a couple of uh, things that you want to take note of here. First of all, that this is the second of three very similar stories that are told in this arc of Abraham. Um, we saw the first one in chapter 12. Now there's this one. And then the third story will be told in a few more chapters. And in that one, it's Isaiah, or rather Isaac and Rebecca. Um, this story is from the E source. And you may remember that we talked about those sources. The way that we know that this is E source is the name for God is called Elohim. And um, and also the idea of a dream. The e-sources tend to, to have God interact with people in dreams or in visions or through other ways than just directly the way the J-source or Yahweh sources would do. Yeah, so indirect yeah, indirect methods. communication. And if you you know you're reading this in English, you're going to see the word God instead of Lord. Yeah, that's those are two big indicators that mm -hmm. this is. Yeah, yeah, e that source. way you can tell if you don't if you don't even have to know the Hebrew, you can tell the difference. Uh, so same story, different source. To me, that indicates that this particular tale may have been a common one that was told, and that was used by the authors once again. So they're trying to make a point about what God's purposes are being, what they are, how they're being carried out, despite any obstacles or dangers that might come upon them. Um, the one thing you might notice about this story as opposed to the other three or the other two is that this one seems to be about a restoring of order. So we've got Sarah who is with Abraham and that's an orderly way for things to be. Then Sarah is with Abimelech which sort of puts things in, in a disorder or into a chaos and then Sarah is returned also then restoring that state of order. Um, which is an interesting thing to take note of. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit more later. Abraham then asked Sarah to say that he, that he is her brother. So he tells her to do this um, as a kindness. And that's the way he says it in chapter 12, too, that may, may be alive, remain alive thanks to you. So he tells her, if you could tell everyone that you're my sister, this will help me stay alive. Now I won't be killed because you're so beautiful and someone's going to want to take you. Um, 
And because he does this, that's exactly what happens. Again, Abimelech sees Sarah. He takes her into his harem. Um, and then, you know, then he gets the dream and, and Sarah's returned. So what happens then, then is Abraham here then claims that Sarah really is his half-sister. So when Abimelech confronts Abraham, he says to him, well, she really is my half-sister. She's the, the daughter of my, of my father, but not of my mother. So that's a different kind of an action than you see in chapter 12. And I think that the author did that a little bit maybe to justify Abraham's actions here, maybe give him a little bit of an out for the Possibly. reason why he's acting. You're also, and this is something, we'll, we'll try to emphasize this towards the end of this chapter. You're watching, I think sometimes we approach the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, as if they are sort of static characters. Yeah. But I really think that the this, this patriarchal um, episode of Genesis, so chapter 12 up until Joseph, I think they are trying to do character development mm -hmm. that you're watching Abraham grow up a little bit because it, it, there's constantly these stories where like he doesn't get it or yeah. he approaches something completely in the wrong way and God keeps interceding. And part of the point of this would be, you know, if you're trying to wrestle with this in your own head, mm -hmm. it's, it's Abraham's not the person who's important. Right. Abraham is just a mechanism for what God is doing. What I think the Jewish people are emphasizing here is that God's the one who controls the covenant. God's the the primary actor here. So Abraham can be a very flawed, ordinary character who's developing, and that's okay mm -hmm, because sure. it's not dependent on Abraham. So there's a reason why I think it does it, not just to make, you know, Abraham's a human. Um, I, I think there's a reason why theologically that the text would put it that way. But that's kind of what you're seeing. You're, yeah. you're seeing some of that develop here. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, and there's a, a man named Robert Alter, and he wrote a book called The Art of Biblical Narrative. And he talks about these. He describes what's happened here as a type scene. And um, this isn't just necessarily connected to biblical literature, but to other literature as well. But we'll have a little vignette, so to speak, in a, of a story like this. But when we see it in the biblical narratives, it connects to a larger theological part, and that's what I think is happening here. So we see the little vignette, the type scene of what we call the sister-wife story, um, but right. it's also, in this case, connecting to showing how God is, is uh, interacting with humans and then putting forward his purposes by using human beings in this way. Okay. Let's zoom in on yeah. the chapter here, and I want to look at, um, let's just start in verse one. Okay. So this is, there's a couple interesting things that happen just right off the bat. So from there, Abraham journeyed toward the region of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur while residing in Gerar. So, so you just got four specific places, mm -hmm. all of which are in the Levant. So these are territories in the Levant the Levant being what eventually becomes known as Israel, um, ancient Israel at least, at, at its height of expansion. So we're talking about places that future Jewish people would be going like, oh, that's here, like that's where we are, that's our home. Yeah. Um, so we should be clued into that. These aren't random. They're, we're talking about uh, the land that they're going to inhabit one day. Then you get this interesting phrase that in English we might miss. It says, while residing in Gerar as an alien. And the actual Hebrew phrase there is, Vayagar begarar. The two words being used are gar, 
that's what we would translate as alien there, and gerar. And so in Hebrew, you there's there's a uh, a mnemonic device being used here, if if that's an appropriate way to describe it. Gar in Hebrew, so we we translate it alien. More nuance to that would be someone who dwells temporarily, somebody who's sojourning as a stranger. However, gar can also mean to gather for hostility or to gather to stir up a quarrel, right? Then you have a third nuance to it, which is it can mean to gather and be in fear. And so when we translate it as alien, that can definitely take on all of those nuances. But usually we only think of one way. Yeah. You know, it's a stranger or somebody who's get, coming with hostility or somebody who's, you know, trying to um, immigrate for fear. Those, those can all come up. Gar actually implies all three of them uh, at the same time. Hmm. So Abraham seems to be gathered in fear and hostility as a temporary stranger and then gerar means gathering place. So somebody who's gathering in this way in a gathering place. That's what uh, vayagar begerar means. Wow. That's uh, cool. Right. So that's something that, to pay attention to because that starts implicating the, the, the way we're going to interpret the narrative. Right. It's really driving home that there's a dissonance between these characters. So what is the strife of the outsider? Well, that's where we start getting into the, the, the type scene. You know, mm-hmm. you know, she is my sister. Here we go again. The woman wife translation issue is a problem here as well because uh, Aya is woman. It's also wife. So somebody can, and, you know, you could say here is my woman. It doesn't necessarily mean wife. Mm-hmm. It could also mean wife, right? The, and this is where... Hebrew is complicated language because it's so simple. Yeah. There's only so many words. So it, it, it tri- trips us up a little bit. But yeah, so this is similar to Egypt. And, you know, one way I kind of look at this, and this is just like my opinion, opinionated perspective, is, uh, you know, we're getting this picture of a thief robbing different places using the same strategy. <laughs> This is what they call the trickster motif. The trickster motif. Yeah, this the, is a trickster motif in folklore. Yeah. Here, here. That, I think that's honestly, mm-hmm. that's what you're getting a little bit. Oh yeah. And then um, the other thing that's really important is we see Elohim interject and intercede in this story. So again, Esaurus, you know, God using a dream. This is Elo Eloist source. Yeah. Um, and that's going to become a more regular pattern: is God interceding using dreams. We're going to mm-hmm. see that a lot as Genesis goes on now. Um, but so that's that's what we get here. And uh, then you get this this uh, this line where God says to uh, Abimelech, okay, in a dream, you are about to die because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a married woman. Now, again, if you're reading that, um, you are about to die because of the wife whom you have taken, for she is a married wife. Mm-hmm. That can be translated that way too. So you see Abimelech kind of going like, well, I didn't know he meant woman or wife. You know, it's the same word. I mean, he's not, I'm putting that into his <laughs> mouth there, but that's kind of the, the, the circumstance. And so this is similar to Egypt. Um, but God shows up in a dream to Abimelech. Yeah. 
that appears to be like God subverting Abraham's intentions. Yeah. So a parent uh, stepping in when their child behaves, you know, the trickster motif mm-hmm. and God kind of shows up and, and goes, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not going to let this happen. And he reveals what Abraham is up to because the the woman you have taken is a wife. Yeah. Um, and I kind of look at this like God... Elohim does not let Abraham get away with what Abraham is trying to incite as a gar, as an alien. And part of the problem with this, if this trickster motif is true, is Abraham is supposed to be blessing the world, Mm -hmm. not taking advantage of the world to bless himself. Mm -hmm. And if he is trying to accumulate resources or land here, which it looks like he is, that goes against the very nature of Genesis 12. You know, if people back then were familiar with that trickster idea of those typical stories, actually this does change that then, because usually in the trickster story, the trickster does the thing and gets away with it. If in this mm-hmm. case God comes along and subverts that idea, and now that trickster story has been turned on its head. And you see that so much in these stories, that they'll take some common story that's a, a very yeah, common mythological exactly. cycle or something and turn it on its head to show, oh, wait, no, this is different because God is acting in it. Right. That, I, I, I think there's a good chance that that's what's happening yeah. is here's a common narrative mm-hmm. um, and here's how Israel's different within this common narrative. Yep. And again, it's at Abraham's expense, mm-hmm. at, at the expense of his character, right? He's kind of made out to be like, you're, you're the one that we're all looking at as the object of what not to follow. Good thing God interceded for your stupidity. <laughs> um, and that puts a different spin on Abraham then we usually know he's usually so elevated and venerated. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that Abraham shouldn't be. Oh, absolutely. I think the point is that Abraham's veneration has more to do with God than Abraham. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. So that's one of the issues happening. Another issue here that's going to come up, even as this story goes, is God seems to be out of control of the events. And that's, that should be troubling to the modern reader. Abraham made a decision, and that's unfortunately, you know, nothing we can do. It's going to lead to Abimelech and his tribe's death. Sorry. You know, so when God shows up in the dream and says, you know, you're going to die because of the woman you've taken. Mm -hmm. Well, he took the woman because of Abraham. And why can't God just say, hey, Abraham, get in your place. Shut up. And, you know, he's not going to die because of this. Mm -hmm. Why does God seem to be out of control of the events that are taking place, why can't God just keep Abimelech and his people from dying? Right? Can can God not overcome human decisions? This is a troubling passage for us. It almost yes, it's the same as, as back in chapter eighteen when we were talking about Abraham arguing with God about whether or not Saddam was going to be able to be saved or not. It's like he's kind of saying to him, "If I can find ten people, so it's like the decision is almost upon the humans, you yeah. know." And God is, to, and he comes down, and it's almost like God comes in and says, "I want to see what's happening." there in Saddam to see if it's something I need to destroy or not. So at that point, it's mm-hmm. almost like God isn't even sure that God was going to act in that way until God it, talked to Abraham. And this is the problem. If we want to take biblical narratives and turn them into theological propositions, we're going to have a problem. Yeah. We have to be willing to go, this is a story. Mm-hmm. 
and it has theological and philosophical implications. Yeah, absolutely. But it's not a, an encyclopedia of philosophical and theological terms. Right. It's more like it's about the character of God. It teaches us about the character of God and the way God interacts with human right. beings, mostly. Now, we still have the problem. Why doesn't God just stop it? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, with with the Genesis 18 and the argument that happens, why does Abraham even have to argue for that? Right. Hey, God, don't kill people. Ah, you know what? You're right. It, <laughs> it makes God look, uh, it questions the character of it. And uh, I'm not going to try to resolve that. I am going to say, pay attention to how that elevates the character. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and be honest about the parts that trouble you. But realize that it's uh, the writers of Genesis aren't going, and here's the systematic theology for you for the character of God. Exactly. That's not what this is. You can use it to help you understand God. But it's not definitive. Right. And this is where in other places in the text, you're going to get a completely opposite picture. Mm -hmm. So we just need to be careful with that. Just wanted to point that out. Um, All right. So then the next thing that we see is verse four. I want to pay attention to this. Um, We're pointed out that a Gentile king has a conversation with God via a dream. But... This looks very similar now to Genesis 18, where mm-hmm. Abraham is interacting with God. Now Abimelech, who's not part of the covenant, is communicating with God, conversing with God, and arguing with God. Yeah. He even says, similar to Genesis 18, will you destroy an innocent people? That sounds like Abraham, yeah. right? Um there's an, uh, there's another kind of motif here of how a king or a, a figurehead um, represents the whole people. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you see within Genesis and just ancient Near Eastern history um, yeah. as well. Um, and then this whole thing now turns back on, on uh, Abraham and Sarah. Because Abimelech says, hey, I never approached her. Right. So I didn't I didn't do anything. And then God uh, responds by sort of taking credit mm-hmm. for the outcome of this event. Um, God says, it is I who kept you from sinning against me. Um, and then he also, God also acknowledges the integrity of, uh, uh, of, of Abimelech's heart, um, which had, we have actually seen this before so far in Genesis. It means completeness okay. or fullness because we, we like to take like, you know, my heart was in the right place. Yeah. And it's kind of this weird abstract, like, but what does that mean? Well, the integrity of the heart is the character, the, uh, the identity of a person is their heart. Um, and integrity here is completeness, fullness. So think back to when we were told and Abraham was blameless. Mm-hmm. It's that fullness, that embodiment um, that we see again here with Abimelech. But now... Uh, I want to look at the, this word sin. It's actually not shown up that much in Genesis. Yeah. Uh, we looked at how sin does not show up in Genesis three at all. Nope. Um, doesn't show up till chapter four, chapter four. It does. Mm-hmm. And then, but we just assume like sins all over the Bible and, and, and it's not, it mm-hmm. doesn't show up a lot. It does here though. And the word sin is the word hatat. Um, and so we have to ask, because this word comes up, what is the sin here and why is it against God? So God says, furthermore, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. 
So apparently something that Abimelech could have potentially done to uh, Sarah being Abraham's spouse would be a sin and it would be against God. And as a result, this would destroy this innocent tribe. Uh, And that comes at the end of verse six and then verse seven. You know, it says, if you don't return, Sarah, you and all that are yours will die. Yeah. And and there's a lot of difficulty to that translation um, that even I, I can't fully parse out. I would struggle to translate that, that, um, that verse. And this brings me back to the gar, the alien, gathering in fear for hostility's sake. My take on this chapter is that Abraham is trying to incite a war. We saw this in, mm-hmm. in chapter 14 as well, mm-hmm. that these little kingdom battles, clan wars, yeah, yeah. are how you get land. And it looks like Abraham is in this area that's eventually going to be the covenantal land of Israel. And he's using his half-sister wife to try to cause something to go wrong with Abimelech And, you know, let's take the sort of mythical part out that, you know, this sin would lead to this, these people being, you know, sort of mysteriously destroyed. If Abimelech takes Sarah inappropriately, steals her because Mm -hmm. she is in a way land. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is economic. Now Abraham has a reason as a very powerful little wandering nomadic tribe Mm -hmm. to attack Abimelech and take the territory, which would solve the covenantal problem. They'd have their land. Mm -hmm. This makes sense. Actually, it's almost like he's, again, trying to figure this out his own way. Like in chapter 14, we talked about how what the point of that was is to show how God is in control of the land. Now here, Abraham is kind of trying to take control. And it happened with the heir, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. Abraham tried to overstep. Exactly. And make it happen. And then God has to intercede and say, no, what are you doing? Yeah. Again. Well, here it looks like Abraham's trying to incite a war yeah, yep. and gain all of this territory. And that will solve the covenantal problem. He is a gar in Gerar mm-hmm. and God intercedes and it kind of gets put on hold. It's not going to happen like that. And again, Abraham is not the one that's going to pull this off. God will do it. Right. And I really think that emphasis is the point of this chapter. Now, another really interesting thing. Uh, King Abimelech. In Hebrew, Abimelech means my father is king. Now, very common name. You actually see this in a lot of places because, you know, if you inherited a throne, it's because your father was king. You're Abimelech. Yeah. So it's a very generic uh, word. However, it's interesting that here you have this contrast of Abimelech and Abraham. And you'll notice the first part of each of those names is the same, Av, which means father. Okay? Mm-hmm. So Av, Avi is my father. Melech is king. Abraham, Av, is father of many, of a multitude. And I can't help, this is completely my interpretation. I'm not saying this is scholastically agreed upon. This is a theory mm-hmm. that in this chapter specifically, Abimelech, my father, who is my father, that is actually king. I think that the author is trying to spin that to go. Abraham is the actual king here. 
Go ahead. Yeah. Um, there's a connection here for sure. You, you might be right because one of the commentators that I read, and I think it was Susan Nittich, who um, said that this is kind of courtly language, that whoever was writing this, if it was e-source, was a person who was familiar with court and courtly language. And the reason that she thought so was partly because of language like that, but also because when Abraham says to Abimelech, she really is my half-sister, that was not an unusual thing because that's what people did. Right. Courtly people and kings and people would marry within their families because they were trying to keep the line pure. So it was kind of like, which he's is saying, a real I thing am in like Genesis. a king. Yeah. 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 They're, they're go- you're going to see that again and again in oh, Genesis. Absolutely. Yeah. As more, more and more you marriage. see this. And so it's like he is saying, I'm like a king because look at, I even have the same kind of marriage arrangements yeah. that you people have. And the language yeah. used is very much like that. So you, you might be on to something here. If so, then. Uh, who is the real king of these territories that will eventually become the right. covenantal land of Israel? Yeah. Abraham is. Abimelech would kind of therefore be a stand-in, and therefore Abraham wouldn't need to go through this whole charade to try to get the land prematurely. Yeah, He's yeah. already the king of it, mm-hmm. right? So th- there, there's all sorts of complexities going on with this chapter, and it's a fascinating chapter. Oh, it um, really is. If, if somebody is like trying to write a sermon about this, I'll give you your sermon title. It's there was a gar in Gerar. <laughs> you can have it. I I have no rights to that. I would if you if you do that, please send it to me. I want to. We'd love to see, see it. it. Yeah. Um, okay. Now, but let's move on now because then there's some more more details and more problems that come up with this chapter. Mm-hmm. Verse eight, uh, we find out Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, and told them all these things, and they were all very much afraid. So we get this picture that they're afraid. Uh, they call in Abraham. They question Abraham. And then you get this sort of uh, confession or confrontation even where Abimelech says to Abraham, says, what have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought such great guilt on me in my kingdom? And again, language is interesting because it's, how have I sinned against you that you brought this sin on the kingdom? So we translate that guilt. It's the same word. Mm-hmm. Again, it's hatat, and then you get hatat again in the same sentence. So it's, uh, how have I sinned that you brought the sin on me? And again, is this an act of, of war, right? The sin is the result of somebody else's sin. And it's, sometimes that's translated as sin leading to guilt, but it's, there's multiple acts of sin going on here, interacting with each other. And some of that's put on Abraham. Yeah. Right. Um, Then you get verse 10, which is the big question. I think, Uh, what did you, most, most translations will say, what were you thinking of that you did this thing? Mm -hmm. So Abimelech kind of going to Abraham, what were you thinking? Well, it's actually, what did you see? The word there is for sensory perception with the eyes. What did you see that you did this? So first question, did what? Mm-hmm. What well, came and tried to take, economically take from Abimelech, control this territory. Yeah. Uh, and then it's, so you did that because you apparently saw something. What did you see? Well, he saw the opportunity. He saw the land mm-hmm. that was mentioned in verse one. Um, so again, paying attention to the language here, it's what did you see that you did this thing? What did you perceive? What did you consider 
that you worked for this thing. You tried to produce this outcome. And uh, one of my favorite Hebrew words is used here for thing. It's devar. Oh, yeah. Also is like spoke into existence. Mm -hmm. Um, So I love that word. I like that word too. That's a cool word. When Abimelech says this, what were you... What were you trying to get here? I think that's Abimelech as the Gentile who communed with God, giving an indictment against Abraham. I think I think Abimelech is uh, kind of calling Abraham out here, which would be interesting because Abraham's supposed to be the superior one, and again, a Gentile king. Kind of like Melchizedek. We see that kind of pattern again, where the person mm-hmm. who you don't expect, the person from the outside, ends up being the person who kind of calls into question or, or brings out the thing that needs to be shown. Right. Um, now, I want to go back to verse 11 real quick. Abraham, uh, in defending himself. Um, so what were you thinking that you did this thing? So here's verse 11. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Very similar to mm-hmm. Egypt, yeah. right? Yeah, same as chapter 12. Um, but I don't buy it. Because Abimelech has shown more fear of God than Abraham has. Yeah. And again, I think this is this is kind of a subversive attack on Abraham's character. Abraham is just assembling here. He's like, yo, but no, it's... You know. And then, and then, and then in verse 12, besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my ayah, uh-huh. my wife woman. Um, it's like, this is like an episode of Jerry Springer <laughs> unraveling before us. And it kind of feels like to me, like the art of digging yourself deeper into the hole. Yeah. Like, but she is, she, I mean, she is my wife, but she, you know, she is actually kind of my sister. Well, my half sister. And then she became my wife. And it's just because you guys don't fear God. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's kind of what's going on. Um, and beyond all of that, then the outcome of this is Abimelech takes sheep and oxen, slaves, and gives them to Abraham. So Abraham, what he was after, he still gets. Mm -hmm. And he didn't have to try to prostitute his wife Mm -hmm. in order to get it. Um, And Sarah gets restored to him. So that's a positive outcome. Yeah. And a very necessary one for the covenant. Yeah. And Abraham gets all of this stuff. Um, and it's all at, in, instead of having to fight Abimelech for it, Abimelech just does it. Mm-hmm. Even, even after this has been resolved, he just gives him all of this stuff. Um, and then Abimelech says, and this is where I think it kind of comes to a head. Abimelech said, my land is before you settle where it pleases you. Um, and Abimelech allows, doesn't have to. Because at this point, he's restored Sarah. That's all he had to do. Right. And then chooses to give a bunch of stuff as a blessing to the person who's supposed to be blessing everybody else. But as a blessing. And then says, I allow you to settle where you choose. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is going to lead to one of the first settlements in um, in you know what is known as the, the promised land. And think of this now in comparison to Genesis 19 and Saddam. Despite you know, Lot's presence there, who is an ancestor of Abraham, there was no trace of covenantal hospitality. Here's a place that Abraham says has no fear of God. 
and that Abraham fears and is a, is a hostile traveler in, and he does receive hospitality and welcome. So the apparent Gentile who has communication with God and blesses Abraham, what Abraham's supposed to be doing, and does so with extra blessing, um, and eventually this is going to become a command that if you wrong somebody, you don't just pay it back, yeah. but you you add something else in. You're going to see that mm-hmm. in uh, Deuteronomy and such. Um, and then Abimelech never asks for anything in return. So what Abraham set out to require, he does. But it's because Abimelech gives it to him. So I just see this whole thing as a setup that gets completely turned on its head. Yeah. Um, and kind of at the expense of of Abraham's character because the Gentile is honest and repentant and Abraham is manipulative and cowardly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that's interesting. But then it gets more complicated in verse 17. Because then Abraham, the manipulative, cowardly, you know, enter various explicatives here, prays to God and God heals Abimelech because that was part of the problem. Yeah, yeah. Heals Abimelech and then heals his wife and all the female slaves so that they could bear children. And then we find out because it's because their wombs were closed. Yeah. That should sound familiar to us. But... All these women in Abimelech's territories are barren because of Abraham. And, and, you know, Sarah would have been a potential child bearer Mm -hmm. for all these, this whole people who could no longer bear children, which is ironic because Sarah was barren and now she's going to be the child bearer. And this is just, it's all going wrong because Sarah's supposed to be the child bearer for Abraham to produce the heir. We still, we need that to happen. Um, and then Abraham, who's messed up all of this stuff, just in my just out of control, uh, undoes what he caused simply by praying. And there is some power to Abraham that he doesn't deserve. Yeah. You know? Yes, it's true. I mean, it didn't even work on his own wife. I, my question is, and why didn't he just pray for Sarah to not right. be barren? There's a reason why, of course, you know. But, but even within that context, then the question is, is this simply about showing uh, the human versus the divine that God is actually in control of things, even yeah. if it doesn't appear like God is? Because it begins with going like, why would God do it that way? Well, it, every, it ends and everything's fine. Mm-hmm. So was it God doing it or was it Abraham? And in some ways it feels like Abraham is like this, uh, this child learning how to wield an heirloom sword mm-hmm. yeah. that he doesn't know how to use yet. Yeah. Um, but so that's some of the stuff going on. And, and I'd push real quick on that, uh, issue of sovereignty. If we wanted to give a theological theme to this chapter, you know, Elohim is the creator God. And a couple of lines you get is God kept Abimelech from sinning. There's some determinism there. There's some sovereignty there. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, God being able to open and close wombs, you know, even though Abraham has a role in that. I think part of this, not only, you know, the covenant's not dependent on a human being, it's dependent on the divine. I think it's also trying to portray God, especially Elohim, as creator of all of creation and in control of all of history. Um, And then further, Abraham has a special covenant with the divine. 
And even if he makes bad decisions, God still honors this patriarch. And, you know, just a little bit of um, um, a disclaimer on predicting what will happen next. The other patriarchs will also make poor decisions and still be the ones to carry out the covenant. Oh, yeah, that's the story that keeps on going again. You keep seeing that motif of, uh, the, again, that trickster story. Uh, Jacob and Esau and Joseph mm-hmm. are always in that situation where they kind of subvert that whole scenario right there. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So that's kind of the details of chapter 20, but this is also part of a larger arc. Right. Um, so, so how does this implicate, you know, what's happened and what's yet going to happen? Well, there is a very large arc here. Uh, each one of these sister-wife type scenes, as you say, um, all kind of follow a certain pattern. So you see the couple traveling in a foreign land. The husband asks the wife to say she's his sister. This is to avoid being killed by that leader. Um, And then that leader sees the wife and wants her, so she's taken into his harem. This usually causes some kind of plague or barrenness or problem then for that leader. Once he finds out the truth, then he returns the wife. He often rebukes the husband, but then he ends up giving him the goods and resources in the form of livestock and slaves and money and things like this. And so there's this pattern to it. But there's a pattern that even goes a little beyond that, because once you get past that wife's sister scene where the wealth then is accrued, there tends to be a tension then between herdsmen or livestock owners and often about wells. And there's a connection between women and wells because we'll also see that as a another type scene where wives are found beside wells. So mm-hmm. you kind of get a mix of these stories and then it ends usually with some kind of a problem or a rivalry between children and heirs. Um, and so with the first one, Sarah, Abraham and Sarah are in Egypt. There's a problem then later on with Lot. So they leave Egypt with money and things from the Pharaoh. Now they're so big that he and Lot have to split up because they're fighting over grazing land. Well, then Lot sees the land that he's about to go into, which ends up being the land of Saddam. It's a well-watered place. It has a lot of water for his livestock. Um, and then again, then we start to see in chapter 16 problems over children. Same here. Um, Sarah and Abraham are in Gerar. Um, we see uh, it's kind of a covenantal story then there. And then the next thing we know in chapter 21, now Sarah has the baby, but there's a problem with children. So she has Isaac, but then there's an argument between her and Hagar and Ishmael. And then again, Abimelech and Abraham negotiate over wells. So you kind of continue to see this pattern following, and it almost seems like it's a way of perhaps legitimatizing the right of the patriarch Mm -hmm. to have that land and that fertility and that resource because it all goes back to the covenant. That covenant promise is always embedded in every one of these stories and it ends up being that the patriarch is in control of the fertility, the heirs, and also then the resources of the, the gifts that are given to them and then the, um, the land. So that's all the three things of the covenant right there and it kind of all ends up leading back to that arc which is really an interesting thing to take note of if you read carefully these stories. Yeah. And you can even just look at Genesis as a whole as an ideological justification for the land. Yeah, it is. It's a way mm-hmm. that Israel has written record of like, this is why this is ours. See? Yeah. Here, see these stories? That's yeah. ours. Yeah. Um, so you don't be afraid to read that into some of these narratives that are going on. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, chapter 21 kind of moves a little bit in a different direction, but it's still built off of these themes. So let's get into chapter 21 now. Okay. All right. So the first thing that we see in chapter 21 is 
uh, if you read it in English, it'll say the Lord. And that's the tetragrammaton Adonai is how, how I would, how I would phrase that. So it looks like there's some, some J source if you're wondering, mm-hmm. but this chapter is also full of Elohim. So it's a complicated chapter to figure out source wise. Yeah. Um, I think this actually might be a chapter that some people use to say there's not a four source theory. Yeah. See, some people don't. They're just using different names. So mm-hmm. uh, this, this is one of those chapters that does not fit nicely into a category. Um, but let's start with some of the big picture things that are happening here, because this is an important chapter for the covenant and the story of Genesis. Um, and then we'll, we'll zoom in. We'll look at some of the details of the chapter itself. Okay. Yeah. So here Isaac has been born. We have the covenantal child and he is properly circumcised at eight days as he needs to be. Um, and this is a story about how when he is weaned, which might've been as old as three years old, um, you know, sometimes children would nurse off their mothers until they were three years old. Uh, Abraham throws a party and Sarah sees Ishmael playing with Isaac and he, and she gets angry about that. And she says, that son of a slave can't inherit with my son. So she won't even give Ishmael his name. She just calls him that son of a slave and insists that he and Hagar are dismissed. So Abraham is distressed by this, but then God assures him that they will be taken care of, that Hagar and Ishmael will have someone to take care of them. And so he should listen to Abraham. So God tells, rather, listens to Sarah. So God tells Abraham that he should listen to Sarah. Consequently, Hagar and Ishmael are sent on their way. And it doesn't take long for their provisions to run out. And Hagar leaves Ishmael under some bushes. An angel hears them and then inquires about why she's crying. He reiterates that story to her then about how Ishmael will become a nation. So that covenant that was given to her back in chapter 16 is told over again, or maybe this is the same story being told over again, where uh, Ishmael will become a nation. She then sees a spring, a well, or water, and then they are able to live so that Ishmael can grow up. Be aware of the things that are going on here. Um, You may remember us talking about how when Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham, there was a contract there that was a common one in the ancient Near East. And part of that contract was that if a wife didn't think she could have children or to protect the father to make sure that he was going to be able to have heirs, a slave woman would be given to him so that he could have children. Well, part of that Part of that contract was that if the slave woman had a son, that son would also be a full inheritor along with whatever children the freeborn woman eventually ends up having, if she has any, unless they're freed. So as long as they are continues to be slaves, this son has an inheritance. If the mother is freed, her son goes with her and he gives up any of his inheritance. And I think that's what Sarah is trying to do here. She doesn't want Ishmael to inherit with Isaac, so she sends them away and she insists that Abraham gives Hagar her freedom and send her away. Um, And, you know, Abraham's really distressed by this, so... It's really helpful to look at this chapter in terms less of like um, a a soap opera sitcom kind of thing and more of, you know, this there are specific reasons why these events are taking place based on what that original audience might have been hearing. Like, right. uh-oh, Ishmael's going to have equal inheritance. Oh, nope, she sent him away. Ah, okay, see what they did there. It's really helpful for us modern readers to consider those things to make sense of 
why the story is the way that it is. Absolutely. And again, too, everything we say, like we were talking about the J source and, and the E source a little while ago, all of these things are somewhat theoretical. I mean, scholars tell us these things. I myself read commentaries and then tell you what the commentaries say. You know, Tyler is looking at the Hebrew and, and interpreting what he feels, but these things can be interpreted in different ways. Um, so it's a good thing to take note of. But um, what seems odd to me here is that God seems to back up Sarah in the situation. He says, nope, nope you know, go ahead and let Hagar go. And I think there's a reason for that. And I think because in the larger story here, we need to see a separation of people who are not in the covenant as opposed to the people who, or, or they will be in the covenant, but at this point, they're not part of that covenantal uh, promise just yet. So back in chapter 13, we saw Abraham and Lot together. Lot went away. And then at that point, God reiterates the covenant to Abraham. And now it's a situation where we have Isaac and Ishmael together. Ishmael is sent away. Ishmael does get part of a covenant told to him, but now this covenant is about Isaac. He is the covenantal heir. And then later we'll see the same thing with Jacob. Even though Jacob and Esau as brothers end up separating from one another, Jacob is the covenantal heir. Esau, though, does get promises made to him. But it's like a way of separating out these covenants and so that we know who's, who's the main trajectory to this story. By the way... Jesus tells a parable about two brothers. Yeah, he does. And one gets sent away. One leaves. And that should mean that the older brother receives uh, the, the covenantal identity of the father. Yeah. Except in that parable, even the one who left gets included. That's right. So one way you can read the prodigal son, if you call it that, I call it the parable of a man and his two sons. Mm-hmm. Um it looks like Jesus is playing with that motif. And anytime so. you see brothers. Well, it's a younger brother motif. That's a very, that's another common type scene that you'll see. But anytime you yeah. see brothers, you yeah. got to go like, ah, yeah, there's a bunch of brothers in Genesis. Mm-hmm. So what do we hear from them? Right? Yeah. Okay. Definitely. Okay. Go on. Yeah. Oh, that's about it. Okay. Um, that's well, it, it might that's be all... interesting to talk about Hagar a little bit yes. here because it is important to point her out. Um, basically that story is kind of reiterating what, um, happened before in chapter 16 it may be just another version of that story told over again in order for us to remember it um what's kind of odd about it in a way is actually if you were going to look at it chronologically ishmael would have been like 15 years old here and yet in the story it almost sounds like he's a child which makes me think that what they've done is they're telling the hagar story over again but that's important and that's why they're doing it Mm. um it has similar motifs she's lost in the wilderness there is a well, so here is a woman in a well involved here, and she's given a covenantal promise, which almost sounds exactly like the one that Abraham has given. Um, and so it kind of makes you wonder then again if it's just, it kind of tags it on in order to justify maybe what happened to Hagar, or it could also be segueing into the next section of this chapter, which is another well story, which connects it back to chapter 20 with the t- with sister-wife scene, so... Something that I think bears mentioning, especially this uh, this episode with these two chapters uh, and with the Levant conversation and what I said, the covenantal land of Israel and now Ishmael, um, the Ishmaelites become associated with Arabs. Yes, they do. They and become the Muslim eventually people. Islam. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and they actually, they, you know, there's a direct tie to that. Um Right now, so this is being recorded in May of 2021, 
there's a, another issue of Palestine Israel. Yeah, there is. I am not saying that that issue started here with Isaac and Ishmael and Abraham. It is important to recognize that those two identities of people have a very long history. Yes. And so what I, I, I want to put that out there. I'm not saying that it started here in Genesis, you know, 21 or Genesis 16. Um, but we do need to recognize that we're talking about a, a ethnic, uh, conglomeration that's been around for a while. Yeah. What I do want to point out is that when the Hebrew Bible says Israel, or when I specifically, and I, if you want to group in on this as well, you can, when Mm -hmm. I say Israel, I do not mean the modern nation state of Israel yeah, that exactly. was established post-World War II. Right, exactly. That's okay. a political entity. Um, I, so I'm not getting involved in that debate when I talk about like the restoration of Israel or the restoration of the covenant. I'm not talking about like, so back Israel. And I, no, no, no. That is a separate issue that has more to do with post-World War II realignment mm-hmm. than anything with the Bible. Right. I'm glad you brought that up. Okay. I just want to have that somewhere on record Yeah, because it does come up sometimes. Um, if you take the Hebrew Bible seriously and you know, you're a teacher or you're a pastor or you're just talking about these things, you're going to say Israel and we have to separate modern Israel from ancient Israel absolutely, or even biblical Israel from modern nation state, because that has caused a lot of problems. Uh, it's the same with Egypt. Like if I say Egypt, I don't mean the modern state of Egypt. So when I say like, and you know, Egypt was judged, I'm not going, yeah. And you know, the current Egypt regime, no, they're different. Okay. I just want to point that out. Anyways, let's dive into some of the details happening here. So it starts with, uh, Sarah and this promise that we've been waiting for, for a while now getting fulfilled. And uh, just pay attention to the language. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son. So it's not really Sarah's, it's Abraham's. (laughs) Yeah, well, welcome to the ancient world and maybe the modern world too sometimes. (laughs) But that's something to to see there. Um, And what I want to say at this point is last chapter, think about last chapter now through the lens of Genesis 21. Mm -hmm. Why, Why would this narrative be put here? Because it does look like Genesis 20 is supposed to go right with Genesis 22. And this seems like it's been kind of interjected. And it might be because the last chapter uh, kind of acts as an adamant assertion that Isaac's not Abimelech's kid. Yeah, exactly. That was important. So Sarah's going to have a child and Abraham's kind of been using her to rob people. Uh, How do we know the heirs actually from Abraham? Yep. Well, you know, he... Abimelech never even approached her. And here we have Sarah bore Abraham a son, not Abimelech. Not only that, but all the women in Abimelech's realm were unable to have children as long as Sarah was there. So it's kind of like saying, don't worry, not a single one of these couldn't happen. Yep. Okay. So then Isaac's born. Isaac means laughter, Yitzhak. Um, and that's part the promises fulfilled and all of those mentions of, you know, they laughed at God and then God laughed and all that happens. Here you are. So, um, Abraham's supposed to multiply, check, uh, circumcision supposed to happen. That's a covenantal ritual check. Um, 
And so, so far, all of the things that are supposed to happen with the covenant, we're right on track. Mm-hmm. Um, and then verse six, just want to point out, now Sarah said, God has brought laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. Could also be, will laugh at me. And I I think there's a play on words like, you know, it's God laughing back. Like, see, I told you so. Mm-hmm. And that, that kind of ends that section. I have born Abraham a son in this old age. Um, I think this is supposed to be a little bit provocative of Sarah's failure to, to go along with this. And the emphasis on old age, um, I, I, I don't know that that's, maybe that is about a miraculous childbirth story. But one of the details we've gotten in Genesis, you know, Abraham's 100 years old. Um, his years are almost done mm-hmm. because remember, the age has been set at 120. So bearing in his old age, it's this happened before the death toll knocked. Yeah. Um, I think that's the emphasis there. Now, I want to come back to something you brought up yeah. because uh, you said Ishmael was older. Yeah. And yeah. I, th- I think the text actually tells us that. Oh, it does? I think so. Um, they have a great feast mm-hmm. because Ishmael grows, uh, or, or Isaac has grown and is, and is weaned. Mm-hmm. Um, and having this great feast, this is eventually going, you know, we think of like bar mitzvah. They didn't have bar mitzvah there. Right. But we're, we're getting the picture that Isaac is older now. Ishmael is older. Or, no, I, I, even Isaac is. Well, yeah, Isaac is older. He's which like a would, three-year-old child. He's a toddler at this point. But that would mean, I think, um, Ishmael is significantly older mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Not bar mitzvah. What is it when... Um, oh, I don't know. When you have a circumcised baby? Yeah, but th- that happens. A bris, a bris, a bris. But the circumcision has happened, and then he's weaned. Mm-hmm. Um, I read that as weaned from nursing. Yeah, I which, did too you know, they're not stopping that at like a year old. That's going on for yeah. a while. Yeah. So I, I'm assuming here that Isaac is even older. Yeah. He so it's is. not, it's not about Isaac and Ishmael are little babies. No. Uh, with, with Ishmael. So you had brought up that they were playing together. Okay. And we go like, Oh, like little toddlers playing blocks on the floor. Um, and so it, it is easy to think that maybe these are two little kids, but I, I don't think that's the case. Um, so let me refine this verse here. Okay, so verse nine. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, and that you mentioned won't say the name. Nope. Um, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham. So it's just a real easy way to bring up all the baggage. <laughs> right. So the, you know, the Egyptian woman that Abraham got because he fooled the, the Pharaoh down there when he tried to prostitute me to somebody. And then we kind of made this arrangement with this code and then it actually like worked. And now here we are. <laughs> so quick way, <laughs> way to, to say, say that. it all in one sentence. Playing with her son, Isaac. Um, and there's an interesting Hebrew usage here. Because I'm going to, I'm going to try to read it a little bit differently, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar Yitzhaking with Yitzhak. Okay. That's we You can translate Yitzhak as play because mm-hmm. it's laughter, right? 
you know how else you can translate it and i think this is what it should be and i think some translations actually happen yeah some i've seen have sarah saw the son of hagar mocking her son isaac or laughing at her son isaac that's another way that you can translate that if that's the case then the response makes sense what is he laughing at right um why, what, what would this mocking of this Yitzhaking of Yitzhak be? Um, and it could be because of the covenant. So oh, you bring yeah. up this code, might be saying, I get a share. Mm-hmm. And that's where I go. I think they are older and, yeah. and at least teenagers, right? And, and going like, I get, I get a piece of this, yeah. even though you're the firstborn. It, it, that's one way to read it. But there's a mocking going on or, or laughing at going on. Yeah, and maybe even like when she was saying, everyone will laugh at me, maybe Hagar and Ishmael have been mocking her in a certain her. sense yeah. to this so, point, and then little Isaac as well. And that play on words is like, it's Isaac's name. They yeah. were Isaacing at Isaac and Sarah. It, it, you know, it's, mm-hmm. and this word's been showing up since like Genesis 15, right? Um, so then the response of Sarah is the same as Genesis 16. Uh, and Abraham's kind of portrayed as still caught in the middle. And then God gets involved again. Mm-hmm. Um, just like last chapter, things are f- unraveling, God intercedes. Uh, last chapter, things were unraveling with Abraham, God intercedes. You get that same um, that same issue. And not only uh, the code you mentioned, but the, even the Hammurabi code Mm-hmm. kind of gets brought up here of the firstborn being always the legitimate, no matter where that firstborn comes from. Right, yeah. So the emphasis throughout this chapter of bore Abraham a son is not just like masculine patriarchy. It's making a case that Ishmael, according to ancient codes, is still the heir mm-hmm. because it's Abraham who all this is dependent on, not Sarah, not Hagar. Mm-hmm. So that comes from the Hammurabi Code. Um, and, and then like you, what you had say, had said to forfeit the right of an heir, the slave can't be a slave anymore. Yeah. And that's an interesting thing to think about. Hagar is going to receive freedom, sort of moving up in the ancient world at the expense of losing all of this. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's an interesting situational ethic to consider. What would a person want? Right. To have their child be the heir to something that's has potential, but you don't know. You don't know the future, mm-hmm. right? Like I know all these are promised, but what if Abraham dies and this whole thing falls apart? Could be nothing. Or do you choose your freedom, which you're guaranteed from that moment on, but it's not going to come with all this great wealth that an heir would. And that's the thing, especially as a woman, you don't necessarily want to be free. I know that sounds weird to our modern ears, but it's because that was a protection for Hagar. She had a lot of protections mm-hmm. built into that contract that kept her as a second wife. She had more legal rights. Her son had inheritance rights to be set free. Actually, it was almost like it'd be kind of like to compare it. It's like in the Victorian days when you were a servant. And you were let go if you didn't get a good recommendation and you couldn't find another place, as, as a woman anyway, often you would just end up as a prostitute. There was really little little right. else you could do because now your reputation has been besmirched. So Hagar can't even say, well, I'm still a virgin. Now she's got this other man's child with her. You know, what is she going to do? So it maybe wasn't necessarily a it, good thing. And there's also why the promises given to Ishmael yeah. are important. That's yes, almost reassurance for Hagar. Right. She can say that she's, she knows she will be taken care of and so will her son. Right. 
Um, and so she's sent to wander the wilderness. Mm-hmm. You should hear cues there. Wandering in the wilderness. Who else wanders in the wilderness? Ah, Israel does. Yes, they do. Um, and there's still this hope of this great nation because they, mm-hmm. Hagar is given promises. Well, Ishmael is given promises. Similar to Genesis 16, God hears the cry of uh, Hagar. This messenger comes and calls out, do not be afraid. There's the whole hearing and seeing again. Mm-hmm. And then a well gets the brought well up. The well gets brought up again. Uh, and, you know, having a source of water in the wilderness itself is important. Sure. And that's also why wells become a sort of archetypal narrative. But that happens. And I kind of read this. Is it a reiteration of Genesis 16? Absolutely could be. I kind of read this as a, another way to emphasize ideological components of Ishmael. Right. Right, because Ishmael grows up in the wilderness and becomes an expert with the bow. And what that does is that gives Ishmael a connection with Egypt, Arabia, and the Nubians. Oh, really? Yeah, who, who all of which become really <sighs> yeah. powerful people. And that's really interesting to consider. Mm-hmm. So uh, he lives in the wilderness of Paran. His mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Yep, so now he's yep. connected to Egypt, the expert in the bow and, and, and the Nubians. And then that, that area in just the Ishmaelites with Arabia. So three really dominant um, um, ethnicities mm-hmm. throughout different parts of history are all traced back to this person. Okay. Or, or at least associated with Ishmael. Sure. Um, so that's something to consider. In some ways, Egypt, Arabia, Nubia all become way more important than Israel yeah. in world history. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and then, and then we, a really important line is that God was with Ishmael. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that we might leave out when we read this story, but it's something you see again and again is there are not, there's not boundaries to the divine presence Right. And again, look at last chapter. If the divine presence is the creator of all creation and is involved in all of history, it would also, how are you going to limit that presence from different tribal groups? Mm -hmm. This is trying to make a case theologically for what God is like. Um, Often we forget about that. Yeah. Okay. Then it goes back to Abimelech. Yes, it does. Here he is. Mm-hmm. With Fecal, the commander of his army, we have a military meeting on our hands. Yes, we do. So this is not soap opera mm-hmm. narrative anymore, right? The, the chapter 20 is a little, little soap opera-like. This is a military meeting. Um, and Abimelech now is asking Abraham to take a vow by Elohim. Um, I, I wonder why they would assume that, you know, Abraham would, you know, deal falsely with somebody. Yeah, really. Have, Not like he has a reputation. Yeah, it's a very apparent that Abraham's <laughs> reputation precedes him here. And I just love this. A Gentile king gets Abraham to be loyal. Mm-hmm. And that Gentile king has been loyal himself, provided land, and seems to be more covenantal than Abraham. So uh, a very interesting picture. Remember last time we saw a military meeting with Gentile kings? Yeah. Melchizedek showed up. Mm -hmm. So now you have Abimelech um, kind of acting as 
the person who looks more like the covenant than Abraham, just like Melchizedek did. And then you get this water issue with wells. Yeah, there you go. Um, notice here, Abraham gives back the sheep and oxen that he got last oh, yeah. chapter. I see that. Yes, he does. He gives away seven, seven ewes along with some other stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, then they, they make a covenant together. And it's the same word used for the covenant with God. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to assume that a blood path happened. Probably. In, in, this, in this setting. Um, and then what I want to draw attention to was verse 32. When they had made a covenant at Beersheba, um, Abimelech with Fecal, the commander of his army, left and returned to the land of the Philistines. Beersheba is going to become a very important place. A lot of important things are going to happen there dealing with the covenant. Mm-hmm. Um, and the word comes from two Hebrew words, berit, which means covenant, mm-hmm. and shiva, which means to swear or make an alliance. And that's kind of depicted as humans with humans and humans with divine, and somehow those all work together. So how Abraham interacts with this uh, Beersheba with these people implicates the kind of interaction he has with the better Shiva with God. Um, but there it's cause it's the same words used, right? The word doesn't have anything to do with the well. Yeah, it does. But it, the, the actions of it have oh, to do with the, the actions well. of it. Okay. But Berit Shiva is what's that's, used and that's, that's covenant language. That's covenant. Yeah. Okay, and it comes back to a well, uh-huh. which in a land without much water is Again. really important. So whoever's going to control the wells is going to control the land. And if they and... don't interact properly together, they're going to fight. Yes, They're indeed. going to have a war. And who are the wells connected with? The women. And <laughs> who are we having an argument about back in chapter 20? The women. And, so, and, yeah. and even in chapter 21, yeah, sure. the characters right before this were all women right except right. for the kids except for the kids and as, again we have the uh, rivalry between children heirs thing going on there which mm-hmm. is part of that whole large arc of those sister wife stories and it always ends up being over wells and it always ends up being some kind of strife between the heirs yeah who's going to inherit who's who's in control of the resources and the inheritance here so, so that's a couple things to pay attention to the importance of water and wells mm-hmm. um how it's not just about physical wells but yeah, also no. about how those operate in society and the economics right the economics uh, and, and there's a clash here between these two people groups and Abraham takes certain vows to those people as he has made vows to the divine and those interact together. And part of this deals with Abraham's supposed to be a blessing to everyone. So if Abraham um, goes to war with Abimelech, and fecal over mm-hmm. these wells. Mm-hmm. How is that going to bless the the nations? Right. Abraham is supposed to be different. So here we have maybe an example of Abraham actually arriving to the occasion of his promise. Yeah. And how he deals with this will determine that. Uh, it'd be interesting then to read chapter 21 into books like Joshua oh, and sure. Judges, mm-hmm. where Israel starts going to war with the people and defeating them and mm-hmm. taking their land from them. When Abraham, the covenant made some promises here. And I think you can read it as Israel eventually broke those. Yeah. Really interesting in that perspective yes, is the is. Philistines are brought up. As far as I know, at this point in history, you know, when this is supposed to be happening, Philistines don't exist. So why would the author include the Philistines here? The Philistines become the people group that Israel has the most conflict with. Yeah. 
and they take up a lot of the book of Judges, but are even around with Joshua and Samuel. Samuel. I was thinking of Saul and Sam and mm-hmm. the Philistines. Yeah, that was important for him becoming king. And and the whole book of Samuel, even up into David. Sure. You get this this group of people who does not exist yet. Mm-hmm. When the Abraham narrative is happening, why would the author include them here with this covenant about wells and land and economics? And I I think you could make a case if somebody wants to write this paper again, mm-hmm. write mm-hmm. it. Send it to me. I'd love to read it. <laughs> I think you can make a case that Genesis 21 is saying, you're not supposed to go to war with people about land. You made a covenant, a better Shiva. And that's part of your better Shiva with God. And when you broke the one, mm-hmm. you, when you went to use military to take land, that's no longer part of the promise anymore. That's interesting because that's a lot of times the thing that people will use when they're criticizing the Bible is like, well, look at how those Israelites went and killed all those people and just destroyed them and how can this be good? Well, and this maybe is they where, weren't really doing what God told them and, to do. And, and this happens a lot with the Bible. Mm-hmm. You're assuming that the, the narratives are telling you what to do. Right, exactly. Instead of what not to do. Yeah. Is Judges and Joshua a little bit of a critique? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so that, that's one way to read it. Uh, something you can you can do there. Um, Abraham plants a uh, tamarisk tree, mm-hmm. or an oak tree, or an oak tree. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, sometimes this is also translated as grove, not just tree, but oh, really? It becomes a covenantal that place. Makes it even more interesting. Um, and here's where this this word does not show up very often. One place it shows up is in Isaiah 61, where uh, they will be called oaks of righteousness. Mm-hmm. And some people make a case that that's actually a reference back to this covenantal action here. Could be. Um, because Isaiah talks about trees being chopped down and felled, yeah. and then a sprout regrows, and eventually they're an oak again. And is it remarking back to this? Something mm-hmm. to consider if you're into that. Um, and then... Uh, there they called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. So now we're starting to get more names for God. Mm-hmm. Um, and we haven't seen that called on the name of Adonai since uh, chapter four, if I'm not mistaken. Actually, I think it showed up somewhere else. But the first yeah. time we saw it was chapter four. Okay. They began calling on the name oh, of right. Adonai. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you see that again. Um, and then Abraham resided as a gar, an alien for many days in the land of the Philistines. Yeah. And that's how that chapter ends. So that, uh, hopefully we made a case that chapter 20 and chapter 21 are much more interesting than they're given credit for. I think so. They're, they ha- and contain a lot of really important imagery um, and details for um, Israel's identity. And it gets referred to a lot in the future. Mm-hmm. Okay. So two really important chapters that deserve more credit than they're often given. Next time, we will get into Genesis chapter 22 and 23, where we get a lot of different depictions, but also a heavily emphasized story of Isaac and Abraham that most people you know, have heard at some point in their lives. Yeah. So we'll cover all that. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.